0: Hey out there everyone, thanks for joining me for episode 39 of the Mark Guy Show. I still have quite a few things to talk about that I wasn't able to get to in my previous episode that I put out on Friday night, so I'm going to cover some of that, um, see how much I can cover. I know I definitely want to talk about the protests in response to Milo, Milo, Milo Yiannopoulos' appearance, well, his scheduled appearance on the UC Berkeley campus and what the fallout was from that scheduled appearance, the protests that ensued. I know I discussed it briefly at the end of my previous episode, but I wanted to get into that first. I uh, also wanted to discuss briefly my thoughts on the Neil Gorsuch nomination as uh, as Supreme Court Justice. And I also wanted to discuss the Super Bowl and the fallout from that, kind of the political fallout from that, I want to talk about that first. So I was hoping we could have a single event in this country, a, a single big event that tends to bring people together without it becoming fueled by politics or becoming a representative of what's going on in the political sphere. And I know that Bill Belichick and Tom Brady, they're – Connections to Donald Trump and their alleged support for Donald Trump. I know Robert Kraft has a has a relationship with Trump as well. I knew that politics would be talked about at least to an extent, but it's incredible what this game became. You know, Atlanta became a symbol of the downtrodden minorities that are just being uh, being pummeled by the white majority, and then. Brady and Belichick and Kraft and the Patriots are this symbol of white supremacy in these people's minds who everything that they do, they have to frame in racial terms. And that's what this became. You know, Sean King kind of started to push this narrative. I guess he's a Falcons fan. There was a picture he posted of of him and his family in Falcons gear. So he is a Falcons fan it, it, it looks like, at least. I don't think he went out and bought all that just for this game, just to frame things that way. And though he's from Kentucky, he attended Morehouse College in Atlanta, so it makes sense that, that he would be a Falcons fan, but he was even pushing this agenda that the Falcons represented the black struggle, or the minority struggle, and the Patriots were this opposing force. Now, I want to make this clear that I absolutely despise the New England Patriots. I'm from Buffalo. I'm a big Buffalo Bills fan. Pretty much my entire life, I've been watching the Patriots destroy the Bills year after year. Now, the Bills did shut them out this year during Brady's four-game uh, four suspension, but the history throughout pretty much my entire lifetime has been of the Bills getting destroyed by them. So, They are my least favorite team in the NFL. Tom Brady is my least favorite player in the NFL. Bill Belichick is my least favorite coach or executive, you know, whatever front office coaching person in the NFL. So I am not a defender of the Patriots by any means. But I came into the Super Bowl hoping for a good game. We got a great game. The Patriots ended up coming back. It is notable. I I didn't want the Patriots to win, but it is cool to see history, and I think dynasties are generally good for a sport. Uh, I did want to see the Falcons win their first Super Bowl. It's a very struggling sports city, and it's one that I can empathize with, being a Buffalo fan. Buffalo's never won a major sports championship, and Atlanta's only won one. You know, despite all those great Braves teams and despite the Falcons being in existence for 50 or so years, uh, it's crazy they only, have, they only have one championship during all that time. So I wanted Atlanta to win for those reasons. I didn't want Brady's legacy to be strengthened further. But that's what happened. We had a good game. And I also liked that Lady Gaga's halftime performance, she kept it neutral. And I think that that is best. I think that what the... Celebrities tend to be pushing, in the Meryl Streeps of the world. Every everybody thinks that when you have this, when you have this microphone in your hand, and you have the ability to get up on stage, that it's best to use it, you know, use it for a certain reason, use it for a certain motive that you have. But I think all that that does is divide people. You know, just like I don't think that she should go up there, or somebody should go up there and make a performance and and make a statement that I agree with because I don't want to alienate other people. It's one of those types of events that brings most people together, people who aren't sports fans, people who are sports fans, people of all different colors, people of, of different incomes. Everybody comes together and watches the Super Bowl. It's one of the cool things about it, and I thought it was nice that she kept it fairly neutral. Uh, she sang America the Beautiful, which I don't think there's any way people can take offense to that. I thought she put on a good show. And most importantly, as I said, she didn't bring politics into it, even though she was a big Hillary Clinton supporter, and I'm sure that she is not a fan of of Donald Trump whatsoever. But she didn't bring that into the mix, because you're alienating half your audience in that way. Uh, The commercials during the game, I thought, were really pushing that sort of um, diversity type of message, the inclusion message and all of that, and I guess... That's what these marketing departments must be seeing will work with their targeted demographics. And their targeted demographics, for a lot of these products at least, you know, every product is different, but a lot of times it's for young adults who are starting out. They tend to consume the most of their income because they're starting families, they're starting their adult lives, so they're the ones most likely to be going out and buying a new car or you know, buying furniture for their first house. So you know, you look at people in that like 25 to 34 year old age range as being the target market for a lot of products. So that's what these marketing departments must have been seeing that this is the message that we want to push. This is what resonates with a whole lot of of people in that age range. I did think it was pretty. I don't know if I want to say over the top, but it was very clear that that's the message that was being pushed, and a lot of people took offense to it, but. Let's let the marketplace sort that out. Obviously, they know more than we do as a, as a casual observer sitting on the couch watching what's going to work, and if that message really does alienate a whole lot of people, then those companies are going to suffer. They, they will have made a miscalculation as to the type of brand imaging that they want to give off to the world. Um, but what really surprised me the most was this this sort of analysis afterwards, that this was white supremacy prevailing over um, over minorities. You know, that that Atlanta represented blacks and minorities, and, and the patriots represented the white majority. And this couldn't be any further from the truth. I mean, you look at the two cities, yes, a- Atlanta, without me looking at the numbers, Atlanta definitely has a higher percentage of of blacks in its population than Boston does. But Boston has a large minority population as well, and all NFL teams are made up of a majority of black players. So I think it's very difficult to have any sort of team in this day and age that's a representative of white supremacy. There are lots of black players on that Patriots team that played a major role in them getting there that are big stars. James White, who if Brady hadn't put on a – put on a Super Bowl record performance would have been Super Bowl MVP. He's black. You know, a lot of the big time playmakers in that game were, were black. Marcus Cannon for the Patriots had a tremendous game neutralizing Vic Beasley. He's black. Um, I mean, you can go player after player after player. So to have to frame everything in this way, I kind of feel bad for these people, how miserable, miserable it must be Every single day of their lives, they're looking for a reason to oppose something on the basis of race or white supremacy. Or you know, a lot of these people believe in the, the patriarchy being this oppressive force as well. And I, I just feel bad for these people that, that honestly do think that way. I quoted somebody on my Twitter. I'm, I've got to pull it up. Uh, what she what she said and just looking through her timeline. And this is a, a verified person Uh, She's a journalist, a quote-unquote journalist, but she said, and I'm pulling it up, I didn't have this prepared, oh, she blocked me, oh, no, I guess uh, she just deleted the tweets, but she had said basically that Boston is a racist-ass city, she said that, and that uh, the Patriots are a symbol of of white supremacy, that Tom Brady and Bill Belichick are symbols of, of white supremacy, so that was the first tweet I saw pushing that. Then I went further down the rabbit hole, and there are a lot out there. If you search patriots, white supremacy, you can see for yourself. I don't really want to dignify all of those with being with being read on my podcast. But this is just insane. She ended up saying later if if any of the black players decide to go to the White House that they aren't, quote, real ones, which... It's incredible to me the the type of mentality that thinks you have to force people that look like you or people that fit a certain category to think in these very narrow terms, and if they don't think within those very narrow terms, then they're not a real quote you know this group. They're not a uh, they're not a real black person in this case, or you know you're not a real man if you don't believe this very narrow. Uh, list of things you can you can say with any category but I thought that was horrible as well even if you don't even if you hate Trump and you hate the political direction of this country I can understand wanting to go to the White House just for a the experience because what are the chances of you winning another Super Bowl again the shelf life of players in the NFL is so small and you don't know a lot of these guys could be going to different teams next year or they could tear an ACL next year and never get the chance to play again. Uh, so to have a once in a lifetime type of opportunity like that, I think you would want to jump on it regardless of what person was in the white uh, was in the White House or what political party was in power. And also to go with your teammates, it'd be a great time probably to to spend one last time with that entire team unified because there's so much turnover every year in the NFL. And you know that players will be departing as free agents. Super Bowl teams oftentimes get dismantled because now the players are that much valuable or that much more valuable after a long playoff run like that. Teams will pay a premium on the free agent market for them. So it could be the last time for you to go and experience an event like that with your entire team. In you know, in one unified, uh, you know, one unified event. So her timeline was was particularly odious. So I think that's all that's about all I have to say about the Super Bowl and and what happened and all the commentary, all of the fantastic insightful commentary that we got from these types of people. By the way, her Twitter account is twitter.com/kara, which is K A R A R Brown. So Kara R Brown. So if you want to check out some of the things that she said, she deleted both of those tweets that I referenced. So those won't be up there for you to see anymore, but there are plenty more out there. If you want to really go down the rabbit hole, you can search Patriots white supremacy. And I, I'm always looking for any reason to bash the Patriots. Trust me. So the fact that me and people like me are not jumping on board with this, uh, should go to show you that it has absolutely no validity whatsoever. Uh, So next I wanted to talk about the Milo Yiannopoulos protests at Berkeley and the response of of people on the left and the right and, and Milo's response and the whole fallout from what happened there. So I'm a few days late on this. I wanted to talk about it in my prior episode, but I wasn't able to just because I was already above kind of the time threshold that I want to be at. I want to typically be in that 30 to 45 minute range. And I believe I got up to about 50 minutes or so, maybe slightly under 50 minutes in episode 38. But this is an important topic, and Milo is a pivotal figure right now, which is shocking. And I say it's shocking because of the figure that he is. So he's been embraced by a certain segment of the right, and I think his, his reach has grown. And it's grown to the point where a lot of people that I think don't agree with him, Are listening to him because he represents difference and diversity in thought, and I think people that actually do want to think differently about the world and don't want to just live in an echo chamber need voices like that to challenge the things that they believe. And maybe they'll change their mind on certain things. Maybe it'll just reinforce their positions that much more. But I think a lot of the people on the left that are starting to see what these types of movements are doing, you know, what these types of authoritarian movements trying to restrict what people can say and shouting people down and using violence to silence people that they disagree with. I think a lot of people on the left are realizing that this cannot be the future of our movement. This cannot be the future of of the left and of the Democratic Party by proxy. We cannot embrace this and we cannot allow this to continue otherwise we're going to cannibalize ourselves. And I think that more and more people are waking up to that. You see people like Dave Rubin, I think, is a great example of a self-proclaimed liberal who is completely against this regressive left. And he's somebody who probably doesn't agree with Milo on a whole lot of things, but is somebody that's willing to talk to him and, and entertain his opinions at the very least and think about them and be exposed to them. And I think that's the future of discourse on both sides. You know, I'm not saying that echo chambers don't happen within all political movements. I know that it happens within the libertarian movement, without a doubt. I think libertarians tend to recede into their own groups where they kind of know what people believe and don't have to constantly defend every single thing that they say, every single assertion that they make. You know, I know that the neocons probably do the same thing. It's comforting to be in an echo chamber and it's uncomfortable in a lot of ways to be exposed to different opinions and i think what milo represents is is something that's very difficult to pigeonhole and to stereotype because he is a gay british jew that's always how he how he promotes himself yet he believes all these things that generally are associated with conservatives and I don't really see any sort of evidence whatsoever for people trying to frame him as being a white supremacist. This is such a term that's this is a term that's thrown around everywhere now. And once again, we talk about this with so many different words. We talk about it with the words racism or bigotry. You know, using these words and throwing them around, all it does is diminish the actual instances of those things. You know, does he does he believe what the progressives believe? does he believe in the in the wage gap um, is he does he talk about racial issues? Yes but I also don't think that makes him a white supremacist I've never heard him say anything um, I'm open to evidence if it's out there but I'm sure it would be everywhere if there were actual instances of him promoting white supremacy or you know wanting to use the government to impose a you know, an ethno state make the United States an ethno state. I know there are people out there that are that are promoting those types of views, but I don't really see Milo doing that. I don't really see him being an extreme member of the alt right, if you want to classify him as part of the alt right. I know that he's he's liked by a lot of people in the alt right, but it's hard to get those distinctions down. I know he writes for Breitbart, so a lot of the progressives will just call him a a white supremacist part of the alt right, but. I don't really think that he necessarily belongs there. And I'll confess that I'm entertained by Milo. I think he, he's funny, he's smart, he's he's entertaining. There's no other way to really put it. He's, he's willing to, to troll people, willing to say things that are deliberately provocative, even though I don't agree with a whole lot of what he says. You know, it's like listening to somebody like, Michael Savage to me I probably agree with I agree with Milo a lot more than I agree with Michael Savage but I like listening to his show sometimes just because he's entertaining and he's funny and his reactions to callers are priceless just trying to draw parallels there where you can expose yourself to things that you don't really agree with and you don't have to think exactly the same way as the people whose opinions you expose yourself to but I think it can help you to strengthen your own opinions but this regressive left and this Antifa movement, these people do not believe in exposing themselves to differing opinions. They believe, and a lot of this has to do with, with what they're being force-fed in colleges and being force-fed by a lot of the media, trying to mirror Trump with Hitler. And they're trying to make the case, and it makes sense. If you actually do think that Donald Trump is Hitler, then it makes sense to use violence against Donald Trump and his supporters and the people that have enabled him to come to power because you need to stop this unspeakable evil that is the next Adolf Hitler. So you can directly trace back, I think, a lot of this violence to people promoting this false message that Donald Trump is Hitler. But I don't want to excuse these Antifa people whatsoever because at the end of the day, you're responsible for what information you allow yourself to fall victim to and you are responsible for your own actions if you're taken in by lies that try to imply that that donald trump is out to eradicate the eradicate the 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 muslims and the gays and whatever other groups you want to say uh, minority groups from the united states you're responsible for believing the bs that people have fed you you're responsible for if you use violence to try to counteract those people you're responsible for the violence that you have committed. But Milo goes to these campuses, and it's happened throughout this entire speaking tour. He's been doing it for, I, I want to say, at least six months. It's for a lot of 2016 and now early into 2017, where he's gone to campuses and faced these huge security issues everywhere that he's gone. And campuses all over the country, really no matter where you go now, whether you're in the Midwest or, or you're on the coast campuses are overwhelmingly liberal and there are there's this huge social justice warrior faction on virtually every college campus and they're just waiting to try to shout down a a potential speaker try to shout down somebody that comes and in these campuses these oftentimes college republican groups they raise a lot of money to bring milo to their campuses and i feel like it's such a slap in the face to these student groups that have worked hard to bring a provocative speaker who they know is going to bring out a lot of interest and spark discussion and get the name of the club out there, that they want to go and shout down and ruin these types of events. And I'm completely for going and having a conversation. And, and Milo always says that he is as well. He's open to taking questions and debating with people that may disagree with him. But this is not debate what these groups are doing and what they've been doing throughout most of most of this, uh, this speaking tour. Rutgers, there's a very similar type of situation. The event did go on, but uh, people got up on stage, security didn't do anything, and they completely hijacked his event. That was the big highlight, I think, of his speaking tour thus far up until this happened. And when this happened, the event wasn't even able to happen. And I think what this serves is... It serves actually as reinforcement because Berkeley canceled the event. So all this shows to future students at other universities too, and most importantly at Berkeley itself, is if you yell loud enough, if you destroy property, if you initiate violence, then these events, these speakers that you don't want to have on campus will not be speaking on campus. So I think it's going to reinforce the bad behavior that that was shown here. At least the university did come out. And a spokesman, I'll I'll have to give them some credit. Uh, University spokesman Dan Moguloff came out and said, quote, UC Berkeley condemns in the strongest possible terms the actions of individuals who invaded the campus, infiltrated a crowd of peaceful students, and used violent tactics to close down the event. We deeply regret that the violence unleashed by this group undermined the First Amendment rights of the Speaker, as well as those who came to lawfully assemble and protest his presence. End quote. So, there's an important point in there too that the right to peacefully protest and you know to go and and to try to have discussions with people i'm completely in favor of that it's when it turns into this violent obstructionist type of behavior where i where i really start to have a problem with it and i saw it when i was in school you know i just recently came out of school a couple years ago less than less than 2 years ago and it was, it was happening then as well. There's a certain accepted way of thinking, and if you don't think the way that this group thinks, then you're depicted as being morally below them. And there are many people that think that way that are willing to have a conversation and aren't going to demonize you for it, but there's an even larger faction of that type of population that will just automatically write those people off as being less than human or below them, not worth their time to engage. And it's very frustrating. And I'm sure it's even worse in Berkeley, you know, in a, in a state like California, which is probably the the most far-left state in the entire country. You could maybe point at part of New York State or part of Washington State as being close contenders. But it's it's frustrating to watch this and to, A, watch – These people get what they want. You know, the the event got canceled. Milo was not able to speak. I'm sure he'll come back there eventually, but it'll be surprising if Berkeley will let that happen, no matter how much money is raised. And B, the reaction of people who are actually in support of the protesters, really the rioters and trying to frame this as being a peaceful protest, and that how could people possibly want to criticize the right to peacefully protest in an event of a white supremacist like Milo? Not everybody's using the term white supremacist, but um, a lot of people using racist, bigot, sexist, you know, those types of terms to describe him. There should be no support for what happened on the Berkeley campus, none whatsoever. There's no excuse for using violence to stop somebody from speaking. And a lot of the same people that were defending what happened to Milo and to this event were defending the person that punched Richard Spencer at the, I believe it was at the inauguration or right after the inauguration, may have been, I don't know if he was around the Women's March or not. I don't remember the exact details of that punch. But Richard Spencer, who's become a famous member of the alt-right and, you know, he... I'm I'm not a fan of him whatsoever, which is why it's frustrating that now people that believe in freedom of speech have to be defending people like Richard Spencer. But he gets completely blindsided punched. He's just talking on camera by some by some middle aged guy. I believe they got a picture of him. I don't know if he ever was was caught or not, but blindside punched by a guy very hard too. I mean, it was a he, he, he landed the punch pretty well. It was good on spencer to not fall i'm shocked somebody running at you full speed and blindside punching you for you to not take that person to the ground that's pretty embarrassing for the person that threw the punch but a lot of people were defending the punch as saying well when when a nazi's in your presence don't you have the right to punch him a i don't think that richard spencer's a nazi and he was even saying in that interview that yeah, the neo-Nazis don't really like me. I think he's probably not extreme enough for the neo-Nazis. Um, he's more of a white nationalist type. And I know that there, there are there are weird schisms between the groups. And I'm not completely familiar with, with where exactly to draw that line. But he was just there talking peacefully. He was not assaulting anybody. He was talking to people that disagreed with him. But it was not violent whatsoever. He's not there to initiate violence and for somebody to initiate violence against him, it makes you the criminal. And all it does is retrench the people that believe in what Richard Spencer believes, that they're fighting the good fight, that what they're saying is is so true that people are resorting to violence to try to silence them. That That's all that's happening, and that's what's happening with Milo as well, that it's validating everything that Milo says. It's getting his name out there in ways that it never has before. His book sales, so his book comes out in the middle of March I believe it's called Dangerous it's kind of a semi-autobiography pre-orders for it went up 13,000 percent so 130 times overnight and this will get his message out there in ways that nothing else could have that Breitbart never possibly could have could have gotten his name out there and his message out there so it's completely counterproductive. If you really do want to fight against what Milo Yiannopoulos has to say, work on your arguments and go there and beat him in debates. Go there and question him. I'm sure there are ways to, to defeat him in debates. If you can send your best debaters out there. Attack his positions. That's what. Those are the conversations we should be having. Those are the conversations I like to have that really do reinforce my way of thinking or make me think differently it's having discussions with people i both agree with and disagree with but that's not what this regressive left wants to do they want everybody to think the way that they do and they want to use government force to force people to to talk that way or to hold the views that they think and if you don't hold the views that they do then too bad they're going to use the force of the majority to impose them on you. They're not going to try to convince you it's their way or the highway. And it's extremely frustrating I think to to libertarians to watch that. And that's why you've had this weird coalition now where you have people from the left who are disaffected by what's happening with this movement and by the acquiescence of a lot of people in that movement. You know the same people that are saying, "Oh, well good on Berkeley for carrying on the tradition of protest." And are defending the Richard Spencer punch, the people doing all of those types of things. I think people on the left are starting to realize this is crazy. I cannot align myself with these people, so I need to find people that are sane. So you've got those people, then you've got the, you know, you've got the the Breitbart camp, the Milo Yiannopoulos camp, and the alt right, even all of these these groups that wildly differ on on what we want to do in terms of governance and in terms of immigration, in terms of economic policy and all of that, are coming together to fight this common enemy, which is the regressive left, this group that's just shouting down people that they disagree with. Because free speech is extremely important. And once you lose the ability to be able to go and to speak your mind in a public venue where people want to hear you speak— once you lose the ability to do that, you lose a lot of the ability to to fight the common enemies that we all face. You know, you lose the ability to be able to take on your oppressors. And my idea of oppressors may be very different from your oppressors, but taking free speech away hurts both of us in that way because it takes our ability away to voice our displeasure with those oppressors that we that we think are oppressing us. So Anybody, I think, that is in favor of freedom and free speech on any level needs to, needs to come out strongly against what happened at UC Berkeley and needs to support Milo Yiannopoulos' right to speak. And actually listen to what he says. If you completely disagree with him, which many people will, then attack his positions. Go to his events and ask some good questions. Make him support what he's saying. You can maybe even get into back and forth with them. Take a group of people and don't antagonize his supporters or anything. Don't get into fights. Don't do any of this type of stuff. But go there and ask a series of questions that really hit him hard. That's how to fight Milo. Not by shouting him down because all it's doing is driving more people his way. It's making that coalition against the regressive left that much stronger, and even people that agree completely with the regressive left on everything except these kind of free speech issues, you should not be with them because all that they are doing is counterproductive to what you would like to achieve in all other spheres. So even if even if you're somebody that completely agrees with the anti-fa movement on, let's say, universal health care and uh, what government should be doing on on what the right role for government is in our lives. If you agree with them on everything else, but they are the ones that are trying to silence people with different views, you should still dissociate yourselves from them because all they're going to do is detract from your message. And the weaker that they get, the less power that they have, the less numerical power in terms of, you know, people power on their side the more difficult it's going to be for them to actually achieve their ends of stopping these types of events and and silencing people. So on to my third and probably final topic of this podcast, I wanted to discuss Donald Trump's decision to nominate Neil Gorsuch as the next Supreme Court justice. So Gorsuch, I had you know, read articles leading up to this about who the possible candidates were and Gorsuch was a fairly popular name he's he's a pretty young guy he's I believe 49 years old and he's had a pretty quick ascent up through the courts uh, and he was somebody that intrigued me throughout the whole process because I think he's a pretty good replacement for Scalia in terms of generally having, originalist interpretation of the Constitution. And I wanted to talk about a couple instances where I think he aligns pretty well with how libertarians, probably the people that generally are more likely to listen to this show, would like to see the law interpreted. So one of his most important positions is uh, his, it's his position on administrative deference or the chevron doctrine whatever you want to call it it's basically it was from the chevron versus natural resources defense case in 1984 and the case raised the issue of how courts should should interpret statutes that mandated an agency to take a particular action and you know do the courts supersede how the agency has interpreted a statute if if those two interpretations differ, if the agency's interpretation differs from what the court's interpretations are. And the Supreme Court held in this case that courts, assuming that the um, that the interpretations by the administrative agencies are reasonable, and I know that that's kind of a broad term, difficult to define, but as long as they are reasonable, the courts should defer to agency interpretations of particular statutes. So this is a huge case, you know, a huge issue in the legal world because it it rises, it raises the issues of checks and balances and executive versus judicial branch because these agencies are under the umbrella of the executive branch. And if there's this doctrine that the courts always have to defer to quote-unquote, reasonable interpretations of, of laws that are passed by the legislative branch, by statutes, um, it's, it's very difficult in certain instances for the judiciary to to hold the executive branch accountable. Uh, so Gorsuch's position on this is critical, which I think is a great sign. Somebody that's, somebody that's critical on this doctrine likely takes a more originalist perspective or likely has a more originalist perspective uh, and uh, tends to want to stem the tide of these ever powerful administrative agencies that are very very difficult to control because they they generally they kind of have their own budgets or under the executive branch they're not they don't respond to the people in most instances and this chevron doctrine gave gave them a lot of extra leeway and a lot of extra power, and it's more difficult for the courts to hold them accountable. Another that he holds, which has gotten more press, at least from what I've seen, it's probably more juicy for the general public, but it's position on religious freedom. And looking back at the big Hobby Lobby case, Gorsuch wrote a concurrence uh, when the circuit court found that the ACA's contraceptive mandate on a private business violated the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, uh, and that ruling was upheld five to four by the Supreme Court. And This is probably one of the most contentious issues that the Supreme Court and the ju- the judiciary as a whole has faced in the last five or so years. The whole Hobby Lobby case and this idea of does religious freedom give a private company the right to the right to offer the con- to offer contraceptives or not offer contraceptives as part of its health insurance plan and to, to not have to comply with the mandates of the affordable care act. And of course m- my position on this ultimately is that the affordable care act itself is unconstitutional. Enforcing these mandates on businesses uh, is by extension unconstitutional and that a private business should have the right to offer its employees, any services that it wants. You know, If a business like Hobby Lobby decides not to provide its employees with contraceptives as part of its health insurance plan, and this is something that employees so desperately want and need, then Hobby Lobby is going to be hurt in the marketplace. They're going to have a difficult time attracting labor, attracting people to work there, and people will go work for their competitors who don't have this restriction on their health insurance plans. I think that's the best way to go about things. And that's generally the route that uh the route that the Supreme Court took, that, that the judiciary took in this case, that Hobby Lobby due to religious freedom was allowed to get around these mandates. But I think we should extend that to any beliefs. And the marketplace over time has has been a far superior way to eradicate any sort of discrimination i don't mean discrimination necessarily just in terms of racial discrimination or sexist discrimination but if if a business or the leadership of a business holds particular strong views and then they try to basically impose those views or or have a business that completely reflects their views themselves and they alienate a certain number of people or as a result, say something with, with their health insurance, uh, they don't get the services that they would like, the employees, then it's gonna be difficult for them to, to pay for labor or to find labor. They're gonna to have to pay more for that labor than competing businesses that maybe have a have a more flexible approach and an employee by employee approach. And that other company's probably going to out-compete that business that's trying to force its viewpoints down its employees' throats. In that way, I mean, that's been far more effective over time than government trying to come in and force these one-size-fits-all type of mandates, like what happened with Obamacare, like what happened with this this contraceptive mandate. Uh, so, I like his position on this as well on the Hobby Lobby case. I'm I'm not religious, and it doesn't impact me one way or another religious freedom but i do believe that fundamentally if you look back at the history of the united states and and what we were founded on people were intended to have far more religious freedom than i think is currently being interpreted and if you look at when the constitution was ratified several states actually had had state sanctioned religions you know had state religions like if you think of England having the Church of England. That's what these states had, what many states had. Connecticut was congregational, had that as a state religion, until 1818. Uh, if you look at Virginia, uh, the Church of England was, was enforced until 1786, so right up until the Constitution was established. Georgia had the Church of England itself as its state religion. It was disestablished in 1789, so... A few years after, a couple years after the Constitution was ratified. But if the Constitution actually intended for all governments, so state governments, local governments, for there to be no role to be played anywhere of the government in religious life, I don't think the Constitution would have been ratified. And if, if the First Amendment really meant what these fanatical separation of church and state people believe, then... You know, all those, all those state churches would have had to be disestablished prior to the Constitution being ratified. Now, I'm not in favor of the government sanctioning religion whatsoever. You know, I don't want to live in a community that, that is that way. Uh, I don't want my, my state or local government forcing particular religions down my throat. But I also don't think that it's the federal government's place. I don't think they have the authority to stop that from happening. And if a local government wants to have Christmas in the public square or wants to have a particular holiday in the public square or religious ceremonies in the public square, then that's up to those areas to decide themselves. And I've come full circle on this issue. I used to be a fanatical separation of church and state person. But looking back at the actual history and, and learning more about it, all that the First Amendment says is that the federal government shall make no law establishing, basically establishing religion. That's that's what the text of the First Amendment says. And there should be no religious tests for offices of the United States of America, but it doesn't say anything about state and local governments and what should be happening there. And I completely agree there should be separation of church and state at the federal level, but there should not be... You know, there should not be the federal government stepping into state and local governments and getting themselves involved in these public square type of issues and these these wars on Christmas. Now, this particular issue doesn't really impact me because, as, as I said, I'm not religious myself. But I do think this is emblematic of a bigger issue of the federal government overrunning state and local governments. And I think that as long as you have the ability of the federal government to come in and to and to stop states and local governments from doing things that the federal government interprets as being in favor of one particular religion or another, then the states themselves don't have true religious freedom. And I think that that's important too. And if I look back at actually what the intent was of the Constitution, it was not for that to happen. It was for the federal government itself to be separate from establishing religion or making any rules that endorsed or didn't endorse religion or whatever, but that, that that does not extend to the states themselves. The states can govern themselves in this way and the people ultimately will decide what's the best way they want to be governed. What's that ideal balance between religion and lack of religion and people will move with their feet and, and people ultimately will decide what are the best societies? And, and you may have certain areas where religion isn't even seen. There are certain parts of the country that are very irreligious, but there are certain parts of the country that are very religious. And maybe the public squ- the public square could be completely devoted to religion in particular towns because that's the way that people want to live. That's the that's the way that they would like to do things. And who am I to come in with the federal government at my back and try to impose a particular way of worshiping or a particular way of doing things in? these small communities or in these communities all over the country because it's such a diverse country there's another kind of another kind of thorn in the side of centralization and how it's so difficult to make everybody try to follow the exact same rules imposed by the federal government and I think religion is no different from those things so it's it's nice that Gorsuch believes that that he sided with the Hobby Lobby side in that case the side of religious freedom in that case and I think those two things give me optimism and give me hope as to him being a quality supreme court justice now I can't say I'm an expert on this issue whatsoever and I didn't really start following him until recently so maybe new news will come out maybe I'll be talking about him more throughout the nomination process as I learn more but I like my first indication my you know, my, my first impressions of him. And we'll see how that goes. We'll see how the nomination process goes. So thank you for listening, for joining me for episode 39. I should have episode 40 out later this week. So have a great couple days and I will talk to you soon.